Myra Rodriguez was the director of three Plant Parenthood centers. She was Plant Parenthood's 2016 Employee of the Year and also was a whistleblower against the abortion giant. Today, we talk to Myra and hear her story and her journey to Planned Parenthood, through Planned Parenthood, and now her work in the pro-life movement. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Pro-Life Guys podcast. My name is Peter, and that is Cam. How's it going, sir? I'm doing great. How are you? <laughs> I'm, doing, I'm doing really good as well. Uh, I'm looking forward to this conversation, actually, with Myra. Uh, we've never had a former abortion clinic worker on our podcast before, never mind someone who was the director of clinics, um, including the director of the biggest clinic in Arizona, which was where she was working. So looking forward to that. For those of you who are new to the program, we are two guys who are passionate about ending the killing of preborn children in Canada, which is where we are. But this podcast is dedicated to giving you the tools that you need to change hearts and minds from abortion. So you don't have to be in Canada to listen to this. You can change hearts and minds around the world. Our goal is to work towards the transformation of our culture. Cam, you've had you've had like 13, 14,000 conversations on abortion. You'll tell us 10,000. Um, I've had I've had way less, but still within the, the thousands, I believe. And uh, and so what we want to do, as as you know, Cam, and as our regular listeners know, is share the things that we've learned having conversations, share the things we've learned in the abortion war to equip you, to mobilize you, and to motivate you to get involved as well. Now, today is not going to be apologetic focused. Uh, today, we're going to hear the story of Myra Rodriguez, uh, her journey to Planned Parenthood or work in Planned Parenthood and more. But this is just another way for us to get a good understanding and a good grasp of what's happening in the abortion war. Cam, I don't know if you want to say anything before we dive into the conversation, but if you do, take it away, sir. Two things. I I really appreciate doing episodes like this because it offers kind of a deeper perspective for me as a pro-lifer. For me, and I'm sure uh, many of you listeners can relate, it can be tempting to vilify people who either support abortion or work in the abortion industry and say like, these people are like straight demons who just desperately want to kill as many children as they can. It is really difficult for me at times to wrap my head and my heart around the idea that these are people too, people who are desperate for our prayers, for our information, for our love and and generosity and mercy and, and humility and, and all other virtue, that these are people who desperately need us. As, as I am sure that we're going to hear from Myra, the role that pro-lifers played in her conversion and in her being able to share her story now, I think that it's so important to gain this perspective as to what is actually going on at Planned Parenthood, what the people are actually feeling and thinking and what is going through their minds, because that can help us better connect and um, convert ultimately those who are involved in the abortion industry, those who are um, connected in one way or another to it. And so I'm looking forward to this episode. But Peter, there, there's another amount, announcement that I'm sure that you are not going to pump nearly as much because you are the main author behind it. We're going to talk more about it at the end of the episode. We have a new website. Peter, you've been um, spending so much time on this new website. Our old website, I think, was okay. mediocre. I, I think it was pretty good. Um, this new website, <laughs> I think, is fantastic. It's got new content. It's got new layout. It's got our swag. It's got our merch. It's got 
lots of different ways to get involved. There's some courses that you can check out on there. You can find all of our past episodes. You can um, subscribe. You can leave us comments. I mean, so often we're asking for people to comment or rate our podcast. We want to invite you to do that now. And Peter, we haven't actually talked about this at all yet, but I think that at the end of this episode, we should... um, offer some kind of a contest or some kind of an appreciation thing for the first person maybe who offers a comment or review on our website. We'll talk, we'll think about that in the back of our minds um, over the next little bit here, (laughs) but maybe we can announce that at the end of this episode. There there actually is a spot to include podcast reviews. If you go to our Mm -hmm. website, prolifeguys.com, go to the episode tab. It's like a drop down tab, which is very fancy for us. Um, you can see the reviews that exist currently, and then you can write a review as well. So yeah, well, let's think about that, Cam, as we get into the conversation. Stay tuned because there might be a way for you to win something from the merch store. I like the merch store. I like the water bottle in the merch store. Sharp. I like the coffee mug in the merch store, even though I don't drink coffee. But uh, without further ado, yeah, not that one, not that one, the other one. Yeah, I like that one too. I mean, that one's great. Like, look at this, right? Look at that. Um, but the other one, yeah, there you go. Anyway, without further ado, here's our conversation with former Planned Parenthood director, Myra Rodriguez. Myra, thank you so much for taking the time and joining us on the podcast today. Thank you so much for having me here. It's really pressure to be here. Yeah, we're looking forward to hearing your story. So let's let's start at the very beginning. Maybe um, to sort of set the stage, to, to set the groundwork, could you share with us how you ended up in the United States and then your sort of first interactions with Planned Parenthood and how they signed you on to be a team member there? Yes, of course. So I'm born and raised in Mexico City. I moved to this country with a tourist visa when I was 17, 18 years of age. Uh, also, I mean, back then, a tourist visa will let you go into school. So I joined... Um, my last semester of high school and then, you know, community college. And that's what I was doing. So from Mexico City, I had a medical lab technician diploma. And my passion had always been the medical field, right? Like in my country, I wanted to be a doctor. I wanted to go to medical school. So obviously the dream came out of the equation when I found myself in a foreign country, not able to afford that kind of education and not able to attend a university, right? So uh, I work, you know, like many other immigrants in places that um, I was allowed to work, right? So one day, a good friend of mine was working at Planned Parenthood. She said, why don't you come work for them? They help women. They do services for women. And, um, you know, they don't mind that we're immigrants. They don't mind um, undocumented status. Because even though I did have a, a, a tourist visa, it's not a permit to work, right? So that's how we came to the doors of Planned Parenthood. Now, one thing I always mention is that my body, my choice, I learned in high school here. I didn't learn that from my home country, right? Like it was my American history teacher, I remember at Horizon High School in Scottsdale, that taught me what my body, my choice meant, right, in one of her class. So when I came to Planned Parenthood asking for a job, uh, I mean, they were already saying yes to me because my friend had referred me. The first question I truly remember, the, the stronger question I will say, the most important question was, so Maya, what do you think about abortion? I responded, well, you know, as born Mexican Catholic, I wouldn't have one. But if someone else does her body and her choice, right? That's what I learned in school, right? And with that, they gave me the job and I started working with them, uh, the non-abortion clinics. And that's how the story begins. This was in 2000, by the way. 
Gotcha. Very cool. And and we will talk a lot about, I, I, I look forward to talking a lot about your journey within Planned Parenthood and, and most certainly your journey after that. I'm curious, as you were kind of making that application and, and as you mentioned, being born and raised in Mexico and being born and raised Catholic, I'm, I'm curious about the perception of Planned Parenthood. Was this a, an opportunity that you were, were excited about? What was the response from your friends and family maybe who were around you as you were making this decision? Because I'm sure that Planned Parenthood isn't quite as, as prominent and, and um, notable within Mexico. And so was this something that you were very familiar with? You knew exactly what you were getting into? Was this something that you, you just saw a job opportunity and you thought, you know, this is going to allow me to pursue my medical passion? What did that decision look like for you? And what was kind of the response from your family, I guess? Yeah, so, I mean, coming from Mexico, we knew very little about Plum Primary. I mean, I knew nothing about them, right? I mean, I knew I was going to do abortions and I was going to work at the clinics that have nothing to do with abortions. And then um, abortion wasn't just a topic in my household, right? So my family knew nothing about Planned Parenthood back then, right? And and I was excited. Yes, it was the American dream opportunity for me. You know, I mean, it was that or work always like in restaurants, you know, or cleaning houses or babysitting, right? That's what we aim for most of the time. So obviously this was the American dream. It was the opportunity to be in the medical field. And oh my God, I was going to be helping women, right? And then uh, my poor mother, which very strong Mexican and Catholic, it was the justification of, but I won't have nothing to do with abortion. You know, like, and that's how I quieted her conscience for many, many years. Gotcha. And, and I'm sure that that, that wasn't always, I, I feel like I, having heard your story, I, I listened to your episode on Seth Gruber's um, podcast, Unaborted, a beautiful, beautiful episode. I, I appreciate your courage in, in sharing about your experience. And I'm curious about how this kind of unfolded. So you, you get involved, you have this, this kind of standard for yourself that you're not going to be involved in abortions, that you're going to be helping mothers, you're helping women. This is your focus. You're not there to be involved in killing children. Was that something that you were, obviously, you weren't able to maintain that all the way through your career? Obviously, as we'll talk about, you you were um, kind of promoted in, in many ways towards that. What did that kind of conversation look like? And share maybe a little bit about your journey within Planned Parenthood once you had gotten there, about going from working in these Title Ten offices where they were, were not performing abortions to if I understand it correctly, um, directing one of, if not the largest Planned Parenthood abortion facilities in Arizona, what did that journey look like for you? Yeah, so so basically, um, I started working in clinics that had nothing to do with abortion, you know, um, promoting uh, preventive care, especially in the immigrant community, right? That's where I was hired. I was hired because of my Spanish-speaking availability, you know, my knowledge about speaking in the medical Spanish language, you know, which is not that you can speak Spanish, but knowing the medical terminology is another thing, right, in that language. So obviously coming from a medical background in Mexico, I had that knowledge. So I was sent to the communities, you know, to attract the immigrant communities, starting to sound familiar, like my parents, yes, Margaret Sanger did this in Harlem, New York. When she started the first black clinic, hiring black people to serve the black community so they feel comfortable, right? And that's exactly what they were doing here, but I didn't see the two and two, right? But I saw is, oh, they care about my people, right? They care about my people having a place where they will feel safe, they will feel safe to be there, right? And that's exactly what I thought. So 
for many years I worked doing that. I got promoted. You know, I was a very loyal employee. I will argue with people on the street, you know, like, like you don't know, we don't do that. You know, when I work, we do more than that, you know, like abortion is 3%, right? Naive, my right now you're thinking, right, yeah, me too. I'm thinking the same thing. Anyways, and then um, I got the first promotion to become a team leader. Then I became the training coordinator for the entire state. That means I was in charge of training the new staff, you know, on the on the basics of, of how to be a medical assistant or whatnot. Then I became the director of the first clinic, and this was back in like 2010. And then I became the director of the second clinic, which was Flagstaff, Arizona. So now I had the Phoenix and Flagstaff, right? And then I became the employee of the year. I got the employee of the year award in 2016. And I know you heard that from someone else too. It's another story. So, and then after that, you know, I was so loyal to them that I was sent to Washington, D.C. to advocate for them when Trump was about to take away Title 10, along with Cecil Richard, the former Planned Parenthood CEO, you know, because I was chosen from the states of the South, you know, to represent uh, the Southwest, right? It, that's how loyal I was, right? And obviously one day came and, you know, Myra, you're so loyal. You've been here with us for so long. It's time for you to be the director of the biggest abortion clinic. And I'm like, no way. Uh-uh, I don't want that. It is not like it's someone's dream to become the director of the abortion clinic. And you may be like, why? Well, first of all, it's not, you know, throughout the years I had managed to stay away, right? And then now it was like, basically, you know, we're going to lose title. So you, you take that job or you're out of the job. I cannot guarantee that once title is gone, your clinics will stay afloat. So basically, I thought I had no choice, so I took the job, right? Because I was still uh, undocumented at this time, still, right? This is already 2017, right? So I took the job, and I knew the challenges. First of all, the employee retention. No one wants to work there. It's hard to retain employees, right? I knew the directors don't last long. I mean, they go through directors like crazy, right? And I knew that it was really hard to work with abortionists. I have heard the stories of, you know, they're mean people, they're heartless people, you know. So I knew all that. And I'm like, oh, you know, and then my poor mother, you know, it was like, you really have to, you know, but I took, I took the challenge. And when I started there, that's when the story switched. Yeah, that, that certainly is when the story switched from, from what we've been reading. But there were some challenges that you faced before that as well that I'd like to touch on. I mean, you did sort of rise the ranks and, and, and you were a rule follower, as you say, but you did have some sort of challenges with Planned Parenthood. One of them being when you became pregnant and this organization that was a bastion for women's choice all of a sudden thought it a sort of a problem for you to be pregnant. Um, and work the front desk. Can you share with us a little bit about those interactions and um, what some of the problems that Planned Parenthood had with your pregnancy? Yes, of course. So about uh, 2000, I mean, 2001. Yeah, he was born December. So 2001, I had been with them for a little over a year, maybe less. And I became pregnant, you know, and the first thing I remember the supervisor back then was, so are you keeping it? And I'm like, well, of course I am. <laughs> yeah. Well, the part of what I say, I wouldn't have an abortion. It's totally truthful, you know? So I'm like, of course I am. You know, well, you know, you, you're going to make the patients, you know, when they start noticing your pregnancy, the women that come, even though this is not an abortion clinic, you know, the fact that they see someone pregnant, you know, some people that come here for pregnancy tests, for ultrasound, you know, you will make them feel better. Like, they have a way to twist it that they make you feel bad about being pregnant. You know, like, I don't want to make anyone feel bad, you know. 
So then I was removed and put into a position that it was the uncle. They will call me if they need me. After I was uh, five months or six months, they hardly ever needed me. I don't think I was called even once to work until I had delivered my baby and months later, right? So, and that's how that went down. Once I had delivered my baby and months had gone by, and they asked me if I wanted to take a full-time job, and, you know, I did. You know, I came back and worked full-time again. But, yeah, that's how that went. You know, it was like, you know what, Myra, I just said, when people look at you pregnant, you know, we're happy that you chose that. But, you know, the patients, they're not in that state of mind, you know, so you make them feel bad. Like you don't want to make them feel bad. Right. And that's how the way, and I mean, if we look at the abortion industry, that's exactly how they have twisted romanticizing words and making them seem like this is something human to do, you know, like to be a good human being is to help women have an abortion, to not see you pregnant. Right. Now I wasn't the only one they did that to. I knew other staff members that were pregnant at the abortion clinic they were moved to another position or just like me moving to an uncle position. So then, um, so then they wouldn't be called if they were pregnant. Yeah. You've also mentioned that, um, moving to another position was actually a relief for you because of some of the nightmares that you were having, um, in connection with working for Planned Parenthood. Now this is, this is interesting to me, uh, our colleague, so Cam and my colleagues, Jonathan Van Maren, he wrote a book called Seeing is Believing, Why Our Culture Must Face the Victims of Abortion. And in that book, he highlighted the exact same thing, that uh, employees, people that work for Planned Parenthood and other abortion providers suffer from nightmares um, just because of the work that they do. So could you could you touch on that as well? Like, what were these nightmares? What do you think they were from? Um and uh, yeah, maybe just speak to that as well, please. Yeah, I mean, I think the detail that I missed there was that um, I was working at the non-abortion clinic, but the abortion clinic was like literally three doors up, right? And when they were short staff, because I was so good at taking blood, they will call me over to cover for them just to take blood. And, and again, it was like justification, but I will only be doing that, right? I won't be inside the room, right? It was just another way for me to be like, okay, well, I'm just outside, right? So, but obviously at that moment, you hear that vacuum aspiration, you hear the woman screaming, you, you watch the staff taking the, the body remains into the products of conception room, you know, and even though I never stepped a foot in that room at that moment, right, it was still, you know, kind of like seeing them go by with the jars and stuff like that. And that's how I found out that I was pregnant because I will have nightmares that that was my baby in that jar. Now, why do I keep dreaming this? You know, like I thought maybe, you know, it was just me being there that would give me these nightmares, right? Or, or not. when I will keep the vacuum aspirator, I will, in my dream, it was me in that table, right? So I took a pregnancy test and that's how I found out I was pregnant because I was having those nightmares. So yes, obviously when, when they removed me and first of all, it was like, well, you will no longer be there helping them, you know? And because we care about you, right? And we don't want you to be in a, in a position where, where they can see you pregnant, right? And then when they told me to go on call, yeah, I felt relieved, you know, because those nightmares were vivid, you know, they, they were, I thought it was me on that table having an abortion. Mm-hmm. And, and that's a, a theme that I'd love to pull on a little bit more of just this, you mentioned already kind of the high turnover that, that Planned Parenthood often sees. You mentioned that as, as one of the struggles that you were going to be facing as the director of a Planned Parenthood clinic of this, this um, high turnover rate of employees and the, the 
overall negative experience of a Planned Parenthood clinic. I, I'm sure that it, it's a fair assumption to say that there aren't very many people giggling and laughing coming in, let alone coming out of an abortion facility. And so maybe talk a little bit about the culture of that work environment as it as it grew. And then we'll move into talking about kind of the final chapter of your employment story with Planned Parenthood of this, this final clinic that you were working in, in in Arizona. But maybe speak a little bit more about the culture within the the clinics that you were working in and how these nightmares, whether whether everybody was experiencing a similar sort of experience or not, but just kind of the, the general negativity that that you've now reflected upon during your time at Planned Parenthood, I guess. Yeah, so, I mean, after having those nightmares, when you talk to other employees that have been, you, you hear them that, I remember I heard one of them say she will hear baby cry, you know, babies cry, you know. And, and for example, I remember that that specific clinic was turned into a, uh, call center when they started having a call center and the call center staff were new they didn't know about um, that clinic much because it had moved away but they heard that their break room was a products of conception room no one wanted to eat there no one wanted to have their lunch there you know like they didn't want to be there you know they have that sense so when you're in an abortion facility you can feel the heaviness in the air you know Obviously, you just said it. No woman is happy to be there. If you have heard otherwise, it's a big lie. I've been there. I have seen them. No one's happy to be there. They don't want to be there. We all know that, right? That no woman wants to have an abortion. They don't want to be there. So the employees obviously uh, have a hard time working that because most of the women are having a hard time and they reflect on it, right? And the employees are having a hard time. It's not like they love their job. I don't think they do. I haven't met anyone who said, I love my job. I love working here. You know, they may love Plum Parenthood. They may love their mission. I know I did. You know, I confess that before I did. I truly believed in their mission, you know, for many years. So, but not that they love that part of their job. Right. And then also uh, working with the abortionists is very hard. They're very cold, cold people. They're not very social. They're not human being like so obviously all that sets a very tragic tone in the clinic right and, and it's all negative and negative and negative right and patients complains and staff complains I don't want to do this you know why do I have to assist the doctor again I did that yesterday you know you can feel the difference you know I was part of the gala for Hands of Hope Tucson and I came to visit their their pregnancy center a few weeks before that. You can feel the difference. You know, you walk into a, a pregnancy center, like a pregnancy choice center, a crisis center, and it's happiness, you know, from the moment you walk through the door, those people are like, can I help you, you know? And then when you're in an abortion facility, it's like, why can't I help you? You know, like it's already, and you can see it because you can see the Google reviews. Like, I don't think I ever seen a positive Google review from an abortion clinic. And if we have them, it's fake. I promise you that. So, because most women are not even happy to be there and the place are already in that defense mechanism of that's, this woman's going to come upset and I better put my wall right away. Right. So, and that's how that is, you know, and, and, and that's why it's so hard to retain employees. I mean, they go through employees like crazy, just like directors, you know. Because no one wants to stay there forever, even though that's one of the things I found out as a director of the abortion clinic. I found out that my staff at the non-abortion clinic that had been with me for many years, right, like more than five years, 
were making $2 less than a new, brand new staff member at the abortion clinic because you have to pay them higher for them to be able to want to work there. All right. So um, I want to go back to your beat. You're the director of this new, um, the, the biggest Planned Parenthood in Arizona. But you've been having some sort of persistent concerns throughout, and, and those concerns really um, got larger when you became the, became the director. Uh, you saw some critical safety issues, some high complication rates, and a, a number of big problems with one particular abortionist as well. So could you speak a little bit about some of the problems that you faced there as the director? And then how did you respond? Did you want to sort of push this under the rug? How did you respond to some of the things that you saw? Then they wish I did. So uh, I started seeing, I mean, I'm telling you, I started to become the director of the, uh, the Glendale abortion facility in, in, in Arizona at the end of 2016. I had been the employee of the year. I worked just recently, you know, like praising, praising Myra. And then I started seeing that, uh, uh, this is not, this is not 3%. That's my first shocking, right? When I see the deposit amount of money from the abortion facilities to the non-abortion facilities, I'm like, this is not 3%. I mean, when you're depositing 20 grand and only $2,000 from a non-abortion clinic, yeah, that might right there, it's not clicking, right? The forcing to see 45 patients. I wasn't forced to see 20 patients at the non-abortion clinic. 16 was the limit, you know? So and obviously that that's number two. Okay, that's not 3%, right? What else? You know, the, com uh, the complications, the excessive amount of complica complications that were on report, right? And, and we're referring to the doctor, the specific doctor that I complained about was the medical director. That means he oversees all the Planned Parenthood clinics in Arizona, right? So can you imagine? I was like, so if he's this bad, how are the rest, right? What, is he, what else is he covering, right? The amount of perforations, and when I mean perforations, perforations to the years that will happen unreported, not charted. Not even a comment to the patient, you know, you may be bleeding a little more than usual. You may have more pain, you know, because this could may have happened. Not even that, right? Like, let's not tell her, you know, the falsification of patient chart, you know, not put it what happened in the room. It's not what happened in the chart ever. You know, the chart we said abortion done without complication. And what I have heard from the staff was nothing. <laughs> That sounded like a complication to me, right? But I know at this moment you two are wondering, there was a before and after for my, right? There must have been one thing that was like, that's it. That's it. I'm done. Yes. There was a 19-year-old patient. She was 14 weeks pregnant. And the doctor performed the abortion. Um, she had requested an IUD insertant after, uh, which is a little copper tea that they insert in their years to prevent them from being pregnant. And... Uh, the state of Arizona has a legislation that says the abortionist and the assistant and the nurse inside the room, all three of them together, have to go to the POC room, products of conception room, to put that puzzle together. And I mean that puzzle that means two feet, two legs, two arms, a torso, and a head, right? Well, he constantly will break that law. And that's another thing I saw, the breaking the law. You know, he had to sign an affidavit that he, along with his staff, went and did that. But he didn't. He wanted to go home. It was a Sunday. He liked to take 15, 15 minutes on each patient. So he sent his assistant by herself. The assistant went. She comes back and says, it's incomplete. He says, oh, no, I'll keep looking. And she looked on the jar. She looked everywhere. He says, it's still incomplete. He already inserted the IUD. You can see already what a hustle will be for him to try to look inside, right? So uh, she's like, no, no, I'm done. You're going to find it, right? And then he's moving on into the next room. She goes and sees me into my office, really concerned. 
really worried about it, right? I like to emphasize in that because sometimes I want my missions also to make people see that deploys are not all evil. And I'm saying not all. I'm not saying that everyone is good, but not all of them are evil. Some of, some of us really thought we were helping women, you know? In this case, she was concerned. Another employee would be like, well, this is his license, right? I already told him that's his problem, right? But she was really worried, right? She was concerned for this patient. So we go back, we argue with him, and I said, doctor, it seems you're not done. You're missing the head. And he says, go look in the trash. That did it. Referring to a 14-week baby head as trash, like if it was another piece of glass, an instrument that he had used, that did it for me. It twisted my stomach. Like I felt sick. My heart went cold. I was upset. He, after arguing, he finally agreed to the deal for some. He found the head right above the IUD, uncertain, removed the IUD, performed another, um, another aspiration, scraped her again, and... So basically did two abortions in this 19 year only less than half an hour. He didn't document it, so he falsified the chart. He put in there abortion done without complications. He didn't even want to document that he had used two IUDs because he had he had removed one and he had to reinsert one. And even though he wanted to use the same one, we forced him to do a new one, right? Because that that was against protocol. So he didn't even want to document that I had an argument, you know. No, you have to because that's my inventory. So you have to. And we had an argument. He's like, just do your job. I left the clinic, called my supervisor. That's it. You do something or I will. I will go to the health department. I will go to medical board. I will go to plant farm federation, whatever I need to go. But he will stop seeing women. And that's where the story begins. Wow. And and I, I can't say enough how grateful I am for your courage in, in sharing this. I, I can only imagine the horrors of having to to relive this over and over again as you share this this important and powerful testimony. And I think in, in many ways it's similar. You mentioned kind of this scales falling from the eyes kind of moment. I many, many of the audience may be familiar with the movie Unplanned and Abby Johnson's story, may be familiar with Bernard Nathanson or Anthony Leventino or other people who have been involved in abortion processes in various ways and have come to realize the horrors of that. Once that happened, once you give that call to your supervisor, what were you anticipating that Planned Parenthood would do? What were you hoping, I guess, that Planned Parenthood would do? And then tell us what actually happened, because I'm sure that what actually happened certainly wasn't what you were hoping would happen. But but give us that kind of image of what you were hoping once you hung up the phone, once you told them of what you had just experienced and what you had just witnessed and and what you would hope the change would be. And then what the the absolute kind of backstabbing ended up being and, and your process since then, I guess. Yeah, so I was hoping um, response of, oh, okay, Myra, yeah, thank you for letting us know. We will look into it and correct, right? Correct this issue, right? The doctor issue, right? It wasn't just one complaint, it was several complaints, right? Uh, that's what I was hoping. Again, that naive Myra from back then was hoping that their mission was to care for women and not to cover up for the abortions. That's not what happened. A few days later, I was fired, which, by the way, October 3rd of 2017, so just... You know, four-year anniversary now. <laughs> okay. So, yeah, it just was just last Sunday was my four-year anniversary that they said uh, they scheduled me for a meeting. And when I showed up to this meeting, it was Myra. Well, you were out last Friday. We found narcotics in your desk. Unlock. You're fine. And I'm like, mm, <laughs> no, no, they're setting me up, right? This sounds like a setup. You know, they, they thought that 
Mexican immigrant being accused of narcotics. I still remember how they went up, but if you just kind of, in other words, you know, if you just go quietly, we won't pursue anything, right? And I'm like, okay, so I was fired. You know, and at that moment, I my world just collapsed, right? I, where would I get another job? Like, what am I going to do? You know, like, it's this giant against me. It's my word against theirs. You know, what am I going to do? And um, so with the help of the pro-life community, you know, and I found my lawyer, Tim Casey, and Tim Casey decided to um, defend me. And we started a lawsuit against Planned Parenthood for wrongful termination under the Whistleblower Protection Act. So now our job was to prove that I, in fact, have blew the whistle against this doctor. And in fact, Planned Parenthood knew that, and that's what they were doing this. Mm. Gotcha. And and I'm sure that that was a, just a wild ride through that. I'm, I'm, I can only imagine how overwhelming, like you said, coming up against this massive entity and and I, if I'm correct in in my understanding, this was one of the first cases in which this kind of line of reasoning, the whistle whistleblower blower protection act, um, being applied for somebody with your particular um, immigration status and whatnot, and and the confidence going into that trial, I don't know where that confidence would have been at, and yet um, you were successful. I, I'm I'm sure that that was was just an absolute. Um, overjoyous moment of realizing that you had been able to conquer Planned Parenthood, but it wasn't just this one, it, it wasn't like you just wanted your job back and everything to go back to normal. What was this like after this? Because I'm sure that it was kind of a red pill moment um, where um, after so many years of of trying to stay arm's distance and and like you said, for, for the early part of your career, working to justify the 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 ninety seven percent, as it were, of what Pl- Planned Parenthood was was claiming to do. What did that look like after that trial? After you had this incredible victory against Planned Parenthood, um, what was that like for you going through that? And what did that really look like as you reflected more and more on your experience with Planned Parenthood? And now to someone who has dedicated the rest of their life towards protecting preborn children, protecting mothers in an authentic way. What does that journey look like for you now? Yeah, so before I go into that, I would like to explain the reason I did the lawsuit. It wasn't just like you said, obviously I didn't want my job back. I didn't want to work there ever again, right? And second of all, you know, I felt I was so naive believing in their mission, you know, that at the beginning I can promise you, like, let's say today, four years ago, I was like, nah, it might just be that abortionist. It might just be Planned Parenthood, Arizona. I come out and I realized it wasn't just Planned Parenthood, Arizona. It wasn't just that abortion. This is how abortion industry works, right? So I felt like I had believed in their in their fantasy world, in their mission, you know, and I was fooled. And I didn't want the rest of the world to continue being fooled. I, need, I knew I needed to tell my story, but obviously I needed to first prove my case, right? I needed to prove that I, in fact, did not have narcotics on my desk. And then, in fact, they, they did this to protect the abortionists you know, from all my complaints and that they just literally didn't care that I was warning them about how the abortionist was doing all these wrongful things, right? And not only him, but the other ones too, right? So that's how I started the lawsuit. I didn't start the lawsuit to win anything, you know, but just to prove so I could come out to the world and tell my story, which is what I'm doing, right? Now, 
the loss of lasted over a year, like a year and a half. In 2019, we started a trial that lasted two weeks. I don't know if you guys know this, uh, but the jury were all pro-abortion, pro-Planned Parenthood, and still unanimously sided with us. Just so you know, my lawyer never asked for a amount of money. Not once during the trial, he said, I want you to award my client this. I want you to give my client this. No. At the end of his closing statement, he said, I don't have an amount that I can tell you. So it's up to you, right? So the unanimous decision, the amount of the award all came from the jury, right? So, I mean, I knew I wanted to work in telling my story and in speaking my mission. Did I expect it to go this big? No. You know, because after winning the lawsuit, I remember the first call I got that Monday after it was Fox News, you know, sending a car to pick me up to take me to their studios to record, you know, and I never thought this would go this far, you know, which is great, right? Because today I am grateful to tell you that my story has traveled many borders. It has gone to Spain, Ireland, Europe, you know, it has gone to many countries, Portugal, all over Latin America, Canada, and in why? Because I want people just to not be fooled like I was for 17 years, guys, 17 years. I've worked there for 17, but I believed in their mission and the deception. If you guys read that quote from Dr. Wen's book, the former CEO, the former Planned Parenthood CEO, and you know how she left and she just recently wrote a book about the deception of knowing how Planned Parenthood was just literally their main goals, abortion. And I felt that, you know, like for many years I defended them and all these people defend them. People need to know the truth. People need to know that they only care about abortion because it's a business. They don't care about women. You know, they don't care about the well-being of women. They don't care about empowering women and because abortion is destroying women. And I had to tell my story so people could hear that side. Right. But yeah, that that's. I mean, I cannot tell you enough how proud I felt, you know, for example, celebrate my fourth year anniversary last Sunday, marching at my native city with 500,000 people for life and for women, you know, why? Because I care for women. I still care for women, all women's rights, but those include the women's rights inside the womb. They have the right to be born too. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Now I'm, uh, I'm curious that abortionist that you, um, you you had I think you you mentioned you had seventy five pages of documents um, on some of the the problems that um, were being caused by this abortionist. Did that abortionist get fired as well? I mean, you got the you got the boot because of quote unquote narcotics in your desk. Um, did that abortionist get the boot as well just because of of terrible malpractice? Uh, well, he didn't get booted up when I complained. I left and I sued them, right? The, he got booted up when I won the lawsuit, right? Gotcha. So let's say that we won the lawsuit in 2019. Then we came to closing the case on January 2020. By uh, middle of 2020, they did Plan Parent Federation launch an investigation. So I heard uh, the CEO is gone. The doctor contract was finished, you know, and then uh, uh, other people involved in the case too are gone. So what happened to the doctor? It's not like he had a complaint on his medical license or anything because he reopened his private practice and now gives um, abortion pill and medical marijuana in Tucson, Arizona, you know, right across the street from Planned Parenthood Tucson. So, and that's what Planned Parenthood does. You know, during the trial, we found out other abortions. This is, I hardly ever speak about this. So during the trial, we find out how other abortions had been accused of doing things like watching porn before seeing patients, like, um, Literally, the abortionist will watch porn and then go inside to see the patient, you know. 
And then another abortionist was accused of falling asleep during the procedures. Can you imagine his aspirin? He falls asleep and people have to wake him up. And again, these doctors, instead of something happening to their license, a medical complaint or anything from Planned Parenthood, them, they would just literally, their contract were done and they're gone. It's somebody else's problem, you know, out to the world, like I would like to say, you know. To me, it's like having a, a prisoner, you know, that you know that he was killing someone or raping someone and then just, oh, okay, back to the streets, right? Without doing anything on his record, right? Same concept when, you know, the responsibility of Planned Parenthood not protecting this abortion. Why do they do it? They know they have to protect the abortionists because it's hard to get abortionists. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and I'd love to change gears a little bit and touch on something that you just mentioned. And obviously the, the motivating factor behind, first of all, getting involved in Planned Parenthood, but now a more authentic approach to supporting women. And, and I'd love to just get your expression on, for somebody, I mean, the three of us here, and I'm sure that everyone who's listening to this episode, and hopefully far more people than that, have a genuine concern about the well-being of women. And I'm wondering how you would put into words kind of the compare and contrast of how Planned Parenthood cares and supports and helps women, and how maybe a pregnancy care center cares and supports and actually loves women. How, how do you express that difference, I guess? Well, uh, when Planned Parenthood said they care for women, when my case shows they didn't care for that patient, right? They cared to protect the male abortionist, right? They didn't care for their loyal 17-year employee who had dedicated their life, right? They didn't care if I had kids or anything. When they threw me back in the street and I lost my job, they didn't care what would happen to me. They only cared to protect that male abortionist, right? Why? Because he's the one who makes money. Right, Planned Parenthood does not have any other options, right? But birth control and abortion, knowing that birth control, well, we know it's not 100% effective, so it will fail. And those women, well, an abortion-minded woman, it's more likely to choose abortion, you know, because if she's on birth control, to her, I wasn't planning on getting pregnant, so it's not my fault if the birth control fell. So obviously, she can see the abortion as an easy option, and they know this. You know, it's a very smart industry, also. As we know, they don't waste anything, you know, like they use everything from abortion, from knowing that that woman will be a repeater because they know the hardest part is to have the first abortion. After that, it's easy for that woman to repeat, right? And then the usage of the the fetal um, cells, right, for research and whatnot, to give to universities, to give to labs, you know, just like they really, really make sure that they have get money out of every part of the abortion industry, right? So that's not caring for women. What else? They don't care that that woman gets hurt for the rest of their life. Her life's over after that abortion. You know, because post-abortion stress disorder is real. It, it's real. The symptoms are there. And we know because we have talked to these women that had abortions, we know them because they are a big part of our pro-life movement, right? Women trying to tell other women, don't do what I did because look at me now, right? Now, a, a crisis center, there's real options there, you know. I remember hearing when I was at Planned Parenthood, they're not real doctors. They're going to force you to become Christian, force you to become Catholic, make you watch horrible videos that will traumatize you, you know. The other day I was speaking at the pre-born luncheon that they had, and it was one of the questions, like, what do you hear about us? And I said, I remember hearing that. Uh, the ultrasound that they're going to show you, it's not even yours. It's a fake video that they're going to play for you on their monitor. It won't be your baby. They will make you think that it's bigger than it is, so you won't have an abortion, you know, to that extent. 
tell women that. Why? Because they know what they're doing at the crisis centers work, right? That's why Planned Parenthood spends so much time and energy telling people not to go there, right? Because they know that that woman, once she's given a real option, she won't choose abortion. That's what they don't want it to be in the sidewalk to advocate for them, right? You know, we can see the constant amount of legislations trying to pass to block people from being on the sidewalk because they know that that person could convince. If they can convince one person a day as a pro-life activist, you feel you've done something that day, right? And that's exactly what they aim for. So knowing that women have real options at other clinics, you know, that if we find what is the social problem, what is the actual root cause that has that woman getting into that abortion clinic and we can correct that, that woman won't choose abortion. And then they lost the client for the rest of their life, right? Because now that woman will be pro-life oriented, pro-life minded, and, and will be grateful to this uh, crisis center and probably will join us, right? And, and that's what they're afraid of, right? And that's the difference. That's the difference of really caring to empower women and telling a 16-year-old, you know what, you can finish high school and we will help you with your baby in your arms. You know, or telling that young 22-year-old that already has a child, you know what, you still can finish school. We can still help you with all that and we can help you care for both of your kids and you. You know, that's giving women real power, right? Telling women you can do whatever you set your mind to, even when you have your baby in arms. Yeah, and I'm so glad that you mentioned that because my, my experience has corroborated the exact same thing, that I, I've worked with nearly a dozen different pregnancy care centers, mostly throughout Western Canada here, but um, others as well. And what I've found is exactly that same thing, that it's it's a very supportive, but also very like problem-solving oriented, like you are strong, you are capable, help us fill the gaps or allow us to fill the gaps to help you, but you are a strong, powerful woman who can do these things. Whereas I feel like the messaging that must be communicated at Planned Parenthood is simply like, you're weak, you're not strong enough, you're not smart enough, you're not capable enough. It, it just seems so derogatory. But I, bearing that in mind, I guess, I'm curious about this, this last kind of leg of the journey that you're on now, and Lord willing, you'll continue to be on. You, you've mentioned that you've shared your your journey, your experience with with countless people now. You mentioned that you were speaking at a, a massive rally in Mexico City recently here. What has the, the shockwaves been like throughout the, not only the pro-abortion community, but also the pro-life community that I, I hope has welcomed you with open arms um, into, into our midst and, and helped you not only process your experience, but also share your experience in a way that's going to protect other women and their children? What have you seen as fruits of this this ministry that you're now involved in sharing your story? What what stories do you have from people who have been impacted by the message that you have? I'm curious. Well, you know, when I hear someone saying, you know, like uh, this uh, afternoon right now, I was speaking with uh, the 40 Days for Life leader at the Glenda facility where I was the director, you know, because I will be participating with them next week on the 40 Days for Life praying. And when she said, uh, someone, um, the lady that helped me through the most of this, it's still, you know, after 25 years, still praying outside of abortion clinics in, in Phoenix, Arizona. You know, when she said, I've been telling your story to every patient, you know, and to hear that one of them walk away because they heard, you know, the director here, just look at her story, you know, and they see that and they walk away. It's priceless, you know, in, in a way, I'm hoping I can um, overturn every damage that I have done. 
You know, and you're right. The pro-life movement welcomed me with open arms. I mean, I'm overwhelmed by all the love and support. You know, when I heard you call me courageous, in a way, it, I, we talk, said, and I talk about this when you guys heard that podcast, it's kind of sad, you know, that people look at me as courageous because to me, I only did what it was right, speaking up. It's speaking up, it's, it's not a choice, it's an obligation. And we teach our kids that in school, right? You see someone being bullied, speak up, right? Then when you, we're adults, we tend to, not we look at whistleblowers as courageous because we we keep things quiet because we don't want to lose our job because whistleblowers are known for not getting rehired anywhere right like it will be very hard to get a job because whistleblowers are looked as uh, like that you know as someone that if he is wrong it will talk tell on you right like uh, and and that's what the sad part right because speaking up should be the the norm right like. I only lasted 10 months on the abortion clinic. I don't know how other employees have seen what I saw in 10 months and stayed quiet. It still shocks me. You know, I'm glad that you guys look at me as courageous. I'm hoping that my testimony is a sample and many other employees will come out and speak up because that's what should be. They're not speaking up. But yes, I mean, I cannot tell you the blessings in my life are countless. Like you can't count it. Just to pull on that. So I, I'm a, somewhat familiar with Abby Johnson's organization and then there were none. Is that something that, that you've been involved with or, or how has your story kind of dovetailed with that? Have you seen other abortion workers, maybe people that you've worked with or others kind of step away from the abortion industry? Yes. Yeah, I actually worked very close with them. And then there were none. You know, it's my tribe, as we call each other. You know, I became part of the tribe in 2019 after my lawsuit was over. And we have worked closely together. I mean, when you are with and then they were none, you find this place where we all are the same. You know, like I love the pro-life community because they are so welcoming and merciful and nice, you know, but you don't feel that you don't feel judgment when you're with and then they were none. And then when you start talking to them, they gone through the same thing you have. So you understand each other. It's a feeling that it's a brotherhood feeling, right? Or a sisterhood. I mean, there's men too. So, you know, it's that feeling that you have of being with someone that understands you completely. And not only that, but they help you heal in a different way because the healing process we have with and then they were not, it's more oriented to former abortion workers compared to the ones for post-traumatic abortion, you know, patient, right? So in my case, I never had an abortion. I, I was truthful about that. I will never did and I never did, right? So obviously the type of, therapy that you need, it's different. I had found healing there, you know, and talking to other workers and knowing, just like I said, beginning, first I thought it was just Plum from Arizona. Now that I have met the hundreds of former abortion workers were, and then they were none, you know, that it's not only Plum from Arizona. This is not only the abortion is Plum from that this is how the abortion industry works in the world. You know, I have spoken to even nurses from Spain that work in an abortion facility and their stories are similar to Abby's and I. You know, because that's how they work. This is what they do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we we love that. We love hearing the stories. I mean, your story um, of a, a former abortion clinic worker and so many others as well who are in the industry and, and recognize the sort of error of being in that industry and, and coming out and finding healing and then, and then doing what you're doing, which is speaking against the injustices that you saw there. Could you speak a little bit more about Mexico? So you said you're from Mexico City. You just came back from Mexico where there was this massive rally. 
Um, before the show, you you mentioned to us that they were responding to a decision that the Supreme Court made in Mexico. So maybe could you just briefly touch on the Supreme Court um, decision, but also highlight what you were doing there and what some of the pro-lifers are doing in response to uh, the sort of things that are happening? Yes, of course. So like I told you, of the years, they pull a Roe versus Wade Mexican by the Supreme Court despenalizing abortion, which means that it won't penalize anymore. It's not like they legalize it. By now, it had only been legal in Mexico City up to 12 weeks. But by the despenalization, they actually just break loose, right? There's no actual um, limitations on it, right? So basically, a woman can be 39 weeks and have an abortion, right? And, and there's no penalization. And we know what that means. It doesn't mean when they say we didn't legalize it, it's the same thing. You won't penalize a doctor performing abortion, which means it's now legal. Right. But then what they also did is remove the conscience of the doctor. So basically a doctor will be forced to perform an abortion. Right. So the doctor won't be able to say, like, you know, my conscience, my religious or anything will prohibit me from performing an abortion. So basically, as we know from America and the Roe versus Wade, it's very little we can do when it's a Supreme Court decision. Right. So the people at first were kind of shocked. They were losing hope. And then they say, we have to do something in response, right? And this is when the rally came into place. It was like, we have to show the world that we're willing to fight this and give women real options. You know, just like we do in other countries like Canada and the United States by opening this crisis, more, more crisis centers, telling women there is more options. Even though if they legalize this, even though if they, they penalize this, you don't have to choose abortion because we're here to support you. And that's what the march was all about, to tell women we want them. We want them healthy. We want them with their families. We don't want them to destroy their life for a false, uh, you can say like exit, right? Like a fix to their problem that they see as a problem, which is not, you know, when we give women the real solution. And over 500,000 people participate in Mexico City, but over a million people participating nationwide, you know, simultaneously on Saturday, El Salvador had another march because they were trying to do the same thing. Why? There is an attack on Latin America to expand abortion business from Planned Parenthood. International Planned Parenthood Federation has been helping promote and legalize abortion in all the countries since 1980s or 70s, you know, so when Margaret Sanger also created International Planned Parenthood Federation. And, you know, one thing that I would like to remind people is that your tax money in the United States not only pays for abortion in the United States, it helps Planned Parenthood promote abortion, pay for abortions in the world. Just a reminder there. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a, a very, very important reminder that a lot of people have have this perspective that, you know, my hands are clean, I've never had an abortion, my family's never had an abortion, I'm not connected with this industry at all, and yet we're all impacted. Not not just because, like you said, all of our tax, or not all of our tax money, but our tax money goes towards um, supporting abortions both domestically and internationally, but also in, in the words of of so many leaders that, that we need to address injustice here and now. I mean, so many people look to the America, Canada, nations like this as leaders in the Western world. And yet when they realize what we're doing to the weakest, most vulnerable members of our human family, it's, it's just 
absolutely disturbing and disgusting. And yet I, I want to end on, on a question. So, so being part of this incredible rally of 500,000 people, you've mentioned as well, 40 Days for Life and the role they have in witnessing outside of clinics. Peter, you and I work for an organization that works um, day in and day, in, day out to have conversations with people at street corners and on doorsteps. Maybe bring us all together with regards to the importance of sharing this information publicly. Like it's one thing for the three of us to sit in a closed room and just talk amongst ourselves, but let's maybe a, a word of encouragement and empowerment for the audience in sharing the truth in love about what is happening in, in America, in Canada, around the world, what abortion is, what it's doing to mothers and their children. What is the importance, what is the role of outreach and engagement in your mind when it comes to trying to save babies one at a time and ultimately transform our culture? Well, um, first of all, you know, every time I join a rally of 40 Days for Life in any city that I uh, step my foot on, you know, it's my way of telling them there's hope. I'm here. 17 years. I was in that industry for 17 years. That person that I told you that has been praying for over 25 years has prayed for me for that long. And today God gave her the answer. You know, here's your answer. It, it, your time out there was not wasted, you know, because there it is. There is Myra. There's many Myers inside that industry. Hopefully it won't take them 17 years like it took me, you know, but they're there. Also, what I tell them sometimes is like, even if you don't see someone turning around that day, we know that when you're praying outside, over 40% of people don't show up to their appointments. So you never know what car that you drive by was a patient that changed her mind. In fact, I had a testimony about an employee that I hired and that she never showed up to her first day. And when I call her, I'm like, why you didn't show up? She said, I saw people praying. I'm like, okay, so did they do something to you? No. Okay, I'm waiting to hear what happened, right? And then she's like, but if they have to pray to close you down, I don't want to work there. And she didn't work there. You know, no one knew that outside that an employee did not work there because she saw you praying. So that's encouragement. You know, we cannot lose hope. What else? It's that this pro-life moment is uniting us, you know, it's uniting countries, you know, just me being here with you guys when you are from different parts of the world or me being able to go to uh, Latin America or speak my story in Latin America and people knowing that this industry has united against humanity because that's what it is, you know, and, and we are going to be united and this industry will be the reason why the pro-life world will be united as one and we will fight them so we cannot lose hope. You know, I know that sometimes it seems so um, so dark because they have a lot of money. Yeah, I know, I know. You know, and then they seem so powerful, you know, but we can do the job in our homes and educate our children and make them seem abortion unthinkable and we can make it happen. Absolutely. I was just thinking of the, the phrase, you know, they might be, they might have so much money, but the truth will prevail. And so what we need to do, as you say, is be bold and courageous and humble as we um, share with people the truth as we pray for revivals, pray for transformation, and then have those conversations with workers and those in um, who are seeking the abortions as well. Myra, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast, for sharing your story, for for answering the questions, for hearing us out, and uh, for really, yeah, I think inspiring us to uh, be recommitted. I mean, you you fought up against a, an industry that's a multi billion dollar industry, and uh, and you won. Um, kind of like a David Goliath story. And so this is really, really inspiring for us as well as we continually uh, head to the streets and as I know many of our listeners do as well. So thank you so much for taking the time and joining us today. 
Thank you so much to both of you. Thank you for all you do. I, I know being in, I, I know um, you're in Canada. I don't know where you are at, but being in Canada and doing this, I mean, hats off. Hats <laughs> off, really. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> that was our conversation with Myra Rodriguez. That is a fascinating story. Um, in my humble opinion, Cam, I, th I think yours as well. What are some of the perhaps initial thoughts that you have as we wrap this up? I, I honestly just appreciate the vulnerability from Myra. I, I cannot, I, I mean, I, I know that her humility, I mean, she, she doesn't view herself as being courageous to somebody who's pursuing justice, but for somebody who has come to regret ultimately 17 years of her professional life, um, it takes a tremendous amount of courage to look back at that and to publicly state time and again um, the horrors that that she participated in and that she, as she mentioned on a number number of occasions, that she touted these these lines of Planned Parenthood, these lies that are communicated to people in America and around the world. The courage to say, "No, I was wrong. Planned Parenthood doesn't care about women. Planned Parenthood doesn't care about your best interest. They don't love you. They want your money. They want." Um, to do whatever it takes to get your money and, and whatever it's going to, they need to say to you, whatever kind of person they're going to have to put in front of you to get your money, they're willing to do it. Uh, I appreciated her, her humility and her courage in kind of owning that and saying, now I'm dedicating my life towards exposing that and empowering and encouraging pro-lifers. I, I just really appreciated her, her humility in owning um, the the bad decision that she made about getting involved in Planned Parenthood, the, the longevity of her time there, but also her courage in um, addressing that in a meaningful way, not just shrinking away to the the peripheries of society, but rather owning it, using that as an opportunity to generate a conversation around abortion, to change baby, uh, to change minds and save babies ultimately. Yeah, that's that's huge. And that, I mean, that encompasses some of my thoughts as well. Um, an all-around great conversation. Now, on the top of the show, Cam, we made a promise that uh, during the episode, we would think about people writing reviews and doing a giveaway. Now, we uh, what, what do you think about something like this? So we have this option on our website. You uh, you go to prolifeguys.com. Do it now because, because it's such a good website, we think. Um, way nicer than the one before, if you've seen that one. Um, go to episodes, the drop-down tab. Do you write a review. Cam, what do you think of this? The first 10 people that write a review will be entered in to in, into a draw to win um, a water bottle, uh, one of those fancy coffee mugs, that, the item of your choice. What do you think about something like that? I think that's totally fair. Um, write the review. And I mean, if, if you want to give us a five-star review, that'd be wonderful. Your, your entry will not be um, discarded if it's not a five-star review if you have genuine feedback that you want to give um and you think this is a four-star podcast but become but could become a five-star if we made some changes please give us your changes don't just pump our tires but yes i, I think that's fair the first 10 people you'll be entered into a draw and you can win the water bottle your choice the water bottle of the water bottle maybe you you if if you don't need a water bottle if you've got one of those you can get the coffee mug if you want you can um get the the glass mug, if you want, you want our faces on your mug, you can do that. It's got pro-life guys on it. I got some t-shirts over here. We got, we got lots of stuff. Check out the store, checking the merch stuff on there. We'll be in contact with the winner um, to see what you're looking for. But yeah, um, first 10 people will be entered into a draw. You'll get something sweet of your choosing from the store. I think that's fair. Beauty. And um, 
There is an there's an option. I think it's an option. I don't think it's mandatory to put your email address in or some contact information. Please do that so we can see it. Um, so we mm -hmm. actually do have a way to reach out to you. I, I'm sure some of our listeners we know personally, and and we'll be you know we'll have you on a WhatsApp chat or something. Um, but some of you we don't know. So um, do give us some contact information, and uh, we look forward to to shipping out uh, a water bottle. So that's the first ten reviews. So once the once the tenth review is in, uh, we'll be doing that draw. And you will be entered into that chance to win um, any one of these merch items that Cam mentioned. Thank you so much for tuning in. We are grateful that you continue to do so. We're grateful that you you uh, share this episode and other content that we put out with your friends, with your family, with your coworkers, with the students that you study with, or maybe you're a professor, so with the professors that you teach with, or whoever it might be. Thank you so much. Um, we, we've been slowly growing this podcast, so slowly reaching more people and hopefully, uh, slowly making a bigger and bigger impact to change minds, to save lives and to transform our culture, the culture here in Canada, but also the one where you are as well. So thank you so much for your commitment to fighting for preborn children, to be an advocate for the children who are the most vulnerable in our society and probably yours. So thank you for the, for that commitment. If you need any help with anything, if you have any questions, you want to reach out, you want to get involved with the community group, there's a tab on our website for that as well. Go to the main page, scroll down just a little bit. There's a button called join a team, join a team. Um, and you can follow the instructions there and, and we will connect you with a team. So, and there's so many other things on the website too. So go check it out. We, we'd love to be a source of resources for you. Um, perhaps answers for questions or whatever else it might be. So hit us up any way you can. Thank you so much once again. We hope you have a wonderful rest of your day. We hope you tune in to more episodes and uh, God bless each and every one.